There's no doubt that more of your drugs, more of the vaccines, more drugs for just normal therapeutic indications and disease states, more and more of these drugs will be made in this way. They'll be derived from cell culture. They'll be derived from proteins. They'll be derived from animal cells. And they'll have to be maintained at a certain temperature for the duration of its life until it's actually administered. The future of cold chain supply chain today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. Today I'm talking with Wes Wheeler, president of UPS Healthcare, about the safe and efficient transfer of pharmaceuticals at ultra low temperatures. But first, let's hear what's happening in healthcare finance news. Here's HFMA Senior Editor Nick Hutt and HFMA Policy Director Sean Stack. Hey everybody, Uh, right now I am surrounded by more healthcare financial expertise than I ever thought was possible. You hear from Sean Stack in all of these segments, and then in this segment we get to welcome back to our podcast, Chad Mulvaney, who loyal listeners may remember from Beyond the News segments going back a couple of years. So Chad, welcome back. Well, thank you, Nick. It's good to be here. Tell our listeners uh, what you've been up to in the year and a half or a couple of years since you departed HFMA. Yeah, it's, you know, uh, left HFMA. It was a hard decision and made the transition to the California Hospital Association, where I took a role as a vice president of federal policy. And so in that role, I am fortunate to help our over 400 hospital members in the state really navigate some of the thornier regulatory issues the federal level our members are facing. And so much like the work that I did at HFMA, helping them with proposed and final met rules from CMS, so the payment rules, also have had the, I guess you'd call it pleasure, air quotes, of helping them navigate through the No Surprises Act and also sharing with CMS our members' perspective on that. And then unfortunately, because of the ongoing COVID-19 public health emergency, trying to work through the myriad of provider relief fund issues, and then also now more recently sort through FEMA for our not-for-profit and governmental entities. So it's, you know, always an adventure, always something new, and it's certainly a great membership base to work for. And much like at HFMA, I've been very thankful for the very strong team of colleagues that I have at CHA. I bet, yeah, never a dull moment, I'm sure, just like was the case with HFMA. So a couple of questions for both of you guys. And for those who don't know, we're live on the scene at our annual conference in Denver. And a few of the trends that have really sort of captured people's attention and just sort of dominating the news to some degree for our audience is, first of all, uh, margin pressures for hospitals. What are you guys hearing about and what should folks know? Nick, as you rightly teed up, this is something all hospitals are feeling acutely right now. And I'll use my members as an example. In 2021, roughly half of California's hospitals had negative margins. And this bakes in and either remaining scraps of federal relief they picked up. And, you know, the reason for this is pretty obvious. Everyone's experiencing it, right? Median expenses per discharge are up 15% in California in 2021. And it's driven by higher labor costs coming in at 16% over prior year. Supply chain shortages up 41%, mostly around pharmaceuticals. And then basic supplies at 19%. And so, again, same witches brew that everybody's dealing with. Yeah, I would agree, Chad. I mean, I've been meeting with our executive councils the last two days and and workforce challenges and workforce costs are way up. I'm hearing the supplies are up, even though hospitals have a, a much better handle on supply chain now with advanced systems that they built and, and you know, multiple layers of vendors that they're using. But those, those costs and the blended approach of securing those supplies 
really hasn't changed much and will not change much after the pandemic because they want to build in those reserves. But I don't think costs are going to go down in supplies in the near future or maybe not at all again. Uh, maybe done a little bit, but definitely not back to pre-pandemic costs, right? So still a lot of challenges out there for hospitals. Days on hand for cash have definitely decreased across the board for most of our hospitals. And we've seen a lot of community hospitals hit hard by this inflation and workforces. And unfortunately, you know, as you saw in the proposed rules, our members saw in the proposed rule, we're not getting any help from Medicare. So the 2023 market basket update was 2.7% before you add in the, the positive doc adjustment for doc encoding. And that's, you know, that's to account for prior year clawback. So I don't think that, you know, should rightly be put in. And unfortunately, this has been on brand for Medicare, right? Between 2016 and 2021, CMS's market basket update has underpaid hospitals by a cumulative 6.9% compared to growth and risk-adjusted costs for discharge for the cost report. I, while I would expect the market basket update in the final rule will float upwards some, you know, even if they just continue to use the traditional process, it won't be enough unless they select another source of data, which is something that I know CHA asked them to do, and we pointed them in a very specific direction. I know Premier made the same ask, AHA made the same ask as well. So we're all rowing in the same direction. I know HFMA did the same, and hopefully CMS will listen. Yeah, and, and you know, to compound on top of that, the outlier cuts. Yep. I mean, the outlier increases are astronomical to a lot of health systems, where they think it was a decrease of 1.8 or 1.9 percent. Mm -hmm. You know, in in an area of of healthcare that is probably most likely going to correct itself somewhat over the next two years anyway. So that drastic increase to outliers could really be detrimental to hospitals, you know, in the next one to two to three years. Um, and we're hoping that CMS really takes a hard look at their data to analyze the, the you know, the, the outlier volume that, that occurred simply from COVID-19 diagnosis codes. It's just, it's very disheartening. Yeah, you know, on the outlier piece, you raise a good point because the outlier is budget neutral. And yes. So what they've done is they've, you know, taken that market basket adjustment on the outlier. And so if we don't hit the projected 5.1% or 5.11% in this year's rule, you know, we don't get those funds back because they've set, the, they've set the threshold too high. You know, the other challenge, at least on the revenue side is, and this is anecdotally that I'm hearing from hospitals, not only in California, but across the country, those that have open contract or ongoing contract negotiations with plans, the plans are really pushing back aggressively on the requested rate increases, and in some cases, even asking for haircuts. And, you know, this is, you know, I'll call it frustrating and be polite, because despite the fact that many plans, you know, are continuing to enjoy strong margins as they have throughout the pandemic. And so when you think about what are hospitals doing about it, you know, we've known all along that fee-for-service wasn't going to be sustainable. And I think this has just turned the heat up on the pot of water. And so where there's opportunity in the market, you're starting to see more exploration of risk where you've got the capabilities as a system and you've also got a willing partner. And that willing partner from the payer side is certainly important. The other piece is then the expenses, right? You've got the tight labor market, so you're kind of stuck there. But the thing is, is it's working with your HR department to try to figure out how to get nurses, clinical staff hired in so that you can decrease your reliance on temp labor. And also thinking 
in places where you have that flexibility, which unfortunately you don't in California because some of the staffing ratios to use labor differently and also to make sure that you're using everyone's full capability. Because if you can sort of move off of that, that at least takes some of the, the contract labor pressure off. You know, I think we're going to see a lot of creativity here, it, it really, it, truly in the next year to address both of those issues, not only contracts, but nursing nursing costs. Um, what we're hearing from a lot of our larger systems here at HFMA are, you know, some of, some of the CFOs and some of the leadership are just taking hard cuts and they're saying, we're no longer going to be paying these, you know, these triple hourly rates. Um, you know, if, if, if we have to be understaffed and we have to cut back beds, that's just the way it's going to be. Um, so we're starting to see that trend, which is disheartening, but, but I certainly understand that it's happening. And then with contracts, I am hearing some creative creative approaches to contracts that payers seem to be engaging with, with um, providers on where they're backloading those three-year increases in percentages from, you know, maybe not an 857 or an 853, but a 358. Mm -hmm. um, and payers have been really starting to be receptive on that piece. So it's definitely going to be your creativity um, to see folks arrive and strive. You know, the other thing that I'm hearing, and this is, you know, it can be concerning, especially depending on what type of system you are and where you are, is that this is pushing a lot of organizations that haven't looked at unprofitable services to think about whether you you take a hard cut at that. And then also looking at the marginally profitable services, thinking about how maybe you rationalize and consolidate those. And while that is, you know, that the right thing to do from a financial standpoint, that's a hard thing to do. You know, when you think about your mission statement, a lot of these facilities that haven't done that yet, they haven't done it because it's in the mission statement that you're going to serve these underprivileged communities or these underserved communities. And so once that access goes away, you have to wonder who's going to care for these patients because certainly there's not somebody else that's going to step in and do it most likely. And so that's something that we've been trying to educate MedPAC and CMS about, particularly given the administration's focus on addressing healthcare disparities, because my sense is that once that capacity is gone, it's going to be hard to bring it back. Into the community. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's a tough spot. And uh, just to drop in a, a quick bit of news um, regarding the, the inpatient prospective payment system, uh, the Supreme Court did hospitals no favors uh, last week when it, it ruled that HHS can continue to interpret the formula for making disproportionate share hospital payments as it's been doing for the last probably almost 20 years now. Uh, there was, I want to say, an $800 million proposed cut for FY23 and certainly uh, given the ruling, hospitals can expect continued constraints on those payments going forward. chain supply chain has gotten a lot of attention because of the COVID-19 vaccine, but it's not a new concept and indeed is something we'll have to pay greater attention to going forward, according to my guest today. Wes Wheeler is the president of UPS Healthcare, and recently he sat down to talk with me about the challenges and how the industry can improve. Over the last 20 years, the research and manufacture of drugs has transformed quite significantly away from traditional pills and capsules that you typically take for your medication at home. And these drugs that have been developed over these last 20 years are derived from biologic material. They're organic material that can be derived from, from human cells, from animal cells, from plant material. They could be synthesized as a biologic drug. We call them large molecules. And the reason why I say that is because that has completely transformed the pharmaceutical industry in the last 20 years. These drugs are, not, are no longer 
chemicals. They're now biologic material. And biologic material requires uh, special handling. I call them fragile. Instead of being pills in a bottle, we're talking now about liquid in a vial. And liquid in a vial or, or a syringe or in IV form, uh, which includes sterile water, by, for example, all have to travel at a temperature that's not ambient. So below ambient temperature. That's what we call a cold chain. These drugs have to be maintained at a certain temperature in order to, to retain their stability. Stability means purity. So if something goes out of stability, it's no longer usable. And the FDA and all the regulatory bodies around the world follow the same format. If a drug is manufactured in a cold format, in a liquid format, in a sterile format, like many of these new drugs are, they have to move and they have to be stored at temperatures below ambient. That would be two degrees Celsius up to eight degrees Celsius or minus 20 degrees Celsius, which is more like frozen temperature. And then some of the new drugs that are coming out, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, cell and gene therapies, which are being moved at minus 70 to minus 150 degrees Celsius. And these drugs all have to be stored and moved at that temperature in order for them to be viable. What industries are doing this well? You know, food is the thing that, that jumps out to me, but perhaps there are others. Yes, food, uh, flowers, believe it or not, come from South America and parts of Europe. I have to be traveling at uh, refrigerated temperature, which would be two to eight degrees. Uh, that's the standard range. And uh, ice cream, of course, moving at uh, frozen temperature. But the industries that do it well and have to do it well are the pharmaceutical industry. We have no choice. We're moving biologic drugs and vaccines now. And we'll talk about vaccines, I'm sure, in a minute. But these drugs have to move at these temperatures. And if they go outside of their temperature range, as I said before, but from a regulatory perspective, cannot be used. They cannot be administered. So let's talk about vaccines for a second. The COVID-19 vaccine has been the one that that has gotten a lot of attention, but there are a lot of vaccines out there. Are there others that spring to mind that need to have this special treatment? More than 50% of all drugs today in development and probably eight out of the top 10 drugs sold today around the world are in a sterile format. So they're either monoclonal antibodies, they are uh, purified proteins, they're drugs derived from cells. And now, of course, we have cell therapy and gene therapy derived from DNA that are converted to RNA. All these drugs and more and more of these drugs will be coming in the future are required to be traveling in cold chain. So it's not new. I think the first monoclonal antibody was discovered in 1975. I think we've been growing uh, ever since. We're probably up to 50 drugs that are approved now for various indications. But we are going to see more and more of this, where you're taking less tablets, less capsules, and more sterile syringes being administered either at home or at the clinic. You mentioned that this is not new. This is something that's been happening over the last couple of decades. What progress have you seen in healthcare? Do you have any examples where it's done being really well? Um, or do you want to talk about the risks of when it's not done well? The biggest issue we have is that many of the monoclonal antibodies, many of the drugs being developed in sterile format for cancer, for inflammatory disease, for infectious disease, cardiovascular disease, even kidney transplant. Many of these drugs that are being developed are developed in stages. And the stages don't always come from your local manufacturing plant. 
they're coming from India and they're coming from China. And now more and more of these, even the biogeneric drugs that are being manufactured are coming from South Korea. So the problem that that gives us in the logistics industry is to make sure that we can not only store these special drugs in finished format and all the steps ahead of it at certain temperatures at the manufacturing source, but now we have to figure out a way to move them at that temperature across the world. And so we're talking now about the majority of biogeneric drugs. These are the generic versions of the biologics of the monoclonal antibodies that are being made in South Korea. They're being made in Taiwan and Japan and partly in China. We're having to move those drugs all the way to the US. And that means that we have to have packaging, we have to have transport vehicles, we have to have contingency measures, we have to have temperature controlled aircraft and, and vehicles to make sure that the five or seven day journey from a place like Seoul or Tokyo can make it all the way to Chicago at temperature. And so the challenges we have now, and we had during the vaccine distribution, and we still have them today, is tracking the temperature and tracking the time that it takes to get these drugs in finished format from these faraway locations all the way to the US and to Europe. And what about once they arrive? Because they don't just arrive and are distributed right away, right? They go to different healthcare organizations, providers, whatever. And I imagine it just continues from there. Right. So I'll use vaccines as a great example because this is where it all got highlighted. The Pfizer vaccine, uh, which we distributed probably half of the Pfizer vaccines around the U.S. during the COVID period for Operation Warp Speed, those drugs are being manufactured in Kalamazoo, Michigan and they were being transported to Louisville, our central Louisville hub in Kentucky. And from Kentucky, they had to be moved uh, from there to all the zip codes around the US, including the Pacific Islands, including all the army outposts all over the world. And they had to be transported at minus 70 degrees Celsius. That is ultra low temperature. And most of the locations around the, around the country and in these far off locations did not have an adequate way to store the vaccines when they came out of the ultra dry ice box that we were moving it in. They didn't have enough dry ice at the location. They didn't have local freezers that they could store these things. So the importance of rapid administration became the critical factor in the vaccine distribution for all of us. We had to make sure that the ultimate point of view is where you got your vaccination, either could use the, the drug in time, so it didn't go out of stability, or had something local like dry ice or like an ultra low freezer to store the vaccines. And that was that became a major factor in uh, the, uh, the successful distribution of the vaccines in the US. And it seems as you talk about that there's more of this coming, there are more of these kinds of drugs being manufactured. And if we think about COVID is, it's not just a U.S. issue, right? It's a worldwide problem. We're talking now about distributing vaccines throughout the world, trying to get this under control. And who knows what's coming next? I hate to say that because we're still in the thick of all of this, but as other things occur that we need to have drugs, we need to have vaccines and they need to be distributed worldwide. What is the challenge going to be or how are we going to meet that challenge? I guess is a better question. There's two ways to answer the question. First is a regulatory aspect. And then there's secondly, there's a logistical aspect. From a regulatory perspective, you have to make sure that there are treaties in place to allow countries in Africa, 
for example, to receive a drug that's not approved in that country. So that was the first step. When Pfizer was moving and when Moderna is moving their vaccines to Africa, all over Africa, which is a continent, by the way, still well behind the rest of the world in terms of vaccination rates. We had to make sure that those countries could receive them from a legal perspective and, cl and clear customs. And once uh, they're there, we had to make sure that, first of all, time in transit was important. The packaging that we move these vaccines in has a limit of about 96 hours before it goes out of stability. That packaging can maintain temperature at minus 70 degrees or minus 20 degrees up until about 96 hours. After that, you've got to get it somewhere. And so we worked with many of these African countries, I'll just name a few, Nigeria, and we worked with Cameroon, Ethiopia, we worked a lot with Ghana, and we're doing more and more for the African Union now to make sure that these locations have ultra low freezers, local freezers, local dry ice manufacturer to keep the vaccines on, at temperature. This has been our major issue because the manufacturing of these things are coming out of the US and Europe and not necessarily local. What do you think is the outlook for the future when we're thinking about cold chain supply chain management? There's no doubt that more of your drugs, more of the vaccines, more drugs for just normal therapeutic indications and disease states, more and more of these drugs will be made in this way. They'll be derived from cell culture. They'll be derived from proteins. They'll be derived from animal cells. And they'll have to be maintained at a certain temperature for the duration of its life until it's actually administered. And the biggest problem we have now in the industry is that there's a limited number of locations these can be manufactured in that all the pharmaceutical companies are finding alternative ways to make these in different locations, perhaps low cost locations, perhaps places like India and China and South Korea and Taiwan and possibly Vietnam, getting these drugs manufactured and moved and stored at temperature within time is going to be our major logistical challenge. And that is why UPS Healthcare was created. We've been in the business of healthcare for 15 years now, but for the last two and a half, we've focused primarily on making sure we have storage locations where we need them around the world. We have an air and ground network that can maintain temperature throughout its journey. And we have locations close to the points of use so that we can make a worldwide network capable of getting drugs from anywhere to anywhere else in the world. That's been our major challenge. And we've added a lot of square footage. We've added at least four or five million square feet of GMP space around the world, continuing to add coolers and freezers everywhere. We make dry ice now. We have multiple packaging options that we can offer to our clients to make sure that we can maintain stability throughout its journey from wherever it is in the world is being made. So we have a lot of members of our organization in provider organizations. What do you think is the takeaway for them? What are their to-dos here? There is right now, um, by the way, the FDA does track drug shortages. I'm not sure if you knew that, but uh, the drug actually maintains on the FDA website the number of drugs that are in shortage today. There's 172 on the, on the list today. 90 of those are sterile, which means they're temperature controlled, probably derived from cell cultures and biologics like we talked about. And I think there have been issues with, with supply and with the shutdown of Shanghai which I hear is just being lifted in a few days, and the COVID shutdowns we've had around the world and the labor shortages we've had in the U.S. and the supply chain issues we've had, say, in Long Beach, California. These kinds of disruptions 
are going to continue. And if we have a limited number of manufacturing sources, hospitals and doctors and clinics are going to see shortages of some of these key drugs. And so nearshoring is something you're hearing about, finding ways to get vaccines uh, manufactured locally. I'll give a few examples. The Canadians and the Japanese found themselves in a difficult situation where they were reliant upon other countries to supply their drugs. And so the Canadians and the Japanese have made recent movements towards encouraging pharmaceutical companies to build plants locally. And I think you'll see a lot of that coming in the future to prevent any kind of shortages you see coming out of China or India or faraway places. So I think I think that's really the big takeaway. That's interesting. So do you think that'll happen in, in the U.S.? Yes, I do. So let's, let's talk about uh, baby formula. That's a good example. Yeah. Everybody knows that we've had a big shortage of, I mean, who knows in this day and age, we would have a baby formula shortage in the U.S. It's crazy to think about that. But there's only four companies that make that material, and uh, they're not all interchangeable, as you know, if you're a mom. Only a couple of sites could make Simulac, for example, and that major factory was shut down by the FDA for technical reasons and not opened for many weeks. I think we have to be very, very careful about duplicating, expanding the number of sites that are qualified and certified to manufacture these key drugs. And in this case, baby formula. Thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your perspectives on these issues. These are things that our members are caring a lot about, they're talking a lot about, and certainly not something that we're gonna stop talking about anytime soon. So Wes Wheeler, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. And if you'd like to talk with our team, go ahead and reach out. You can email us anytime at podcast at hfma.org. I almost got through that in one take.